0: My name is Brandon Burns and I am the Chief Executive Officer of Peaks Recovery Centers and the host today for Finding Peaks. And today, we are here to talk about outcomes. Specifically, we will be highlighting Peaks Recovery Center's third-party analysis of our treatment-wide outcomes both within and beyond the walls of Peaks Recovery Centers. For those of you not familiar with third-party outcome data collection, we spoke with President and Founder Joanna Conte of VISTA Research and Conquer Addiction on Episode 28. And I invite you to watch that episode, if you have not already um, seen it, to better understand how these third-party relationships uh, work and the importance of them within treatment cultures. Most important to our discussion today is not just the data being presented, but the challenges ahead of us for producing and replicating external strategies for wellness. Marcus Aurelius once wrote to himself, and among the things you turn to, These two, that things have no hold on the soul, they stand there, unmoving, outside of it. Disturbance comes only from within, from our own perceptions. And two, that everything you see will soon alter and cease to exist. Think of how many changes you've already seen. The world is nothing but change, our life is only perception. The takeaway here is that the external world is constantly in flux. Change is happening all around us. For example, the loss of a loved one, a pet, a career, your car, your possessions, even your safety. Nothing external is guaranteed to us. Our internal peace is fragmented only when our perception of the external seeps into our soul, our divine consciousness, or however you wish to see the internal. As much as Peaks Recovery Center's desires to create the magic bullet for wellness, we too are in conflict with the external world. We need more resources to hire more staff to treat not just more people, but to treat them with quality and compassion. Insurance companies, on the other hand, see the world through low costs and high volume. As such, our externalization of strategies in the absence of the silver bullet are hopeful, sometimes at best, But our internal desire to preserve quality and compassion has remained unchanged. Our challenges cannot stand in front of the commitment. The external may frustrate us, but it cannot deter us from the mission of saving lives. Contemporaneous to this, we further look to explore what it means for each individual, however they are suffering in the world, to take this opportunity to reflect on where he or she's power truly lies. Across all conversations of wellness, faith, philosophy, and so forth, it feels clear that where any one person's control lies is within oneself. To reach out to treatment program like Peaks is one external strategy that will support your internal wellness through its medical and clinical culture. But we cannot walk with you beyond its walls. For example, to achieve wellness from depression, anxiety, trauma, substance abuse, requires a deep dive into the arena of discomfort and acceptance that treatment is just the beginning, a trailhead, if you will. The path forward will not be linear, but the path is yours to walk. It further requires both motivation and discipline to take one step at a time toward internal healing, and today we discuss how to balance the responsibilities between the treatment world and the individual's responsibility toward the path of wellness. And I'm joined today by our Chief Clinical Officer, Jason Friesma, LPC, LAC, All the Clinical Things, and our Clinical Director for our Men's Campus, Lauren Atencio, LAC, LPCC, nearly all the clinical things, as we've joked about in the past, to discuss this very important topic. So let's take this opportunity to get to know each other, to balance these responsibilities, and let's dive right into it. Well, here we are again, both of you, already introduced, already did the intro.
1: Yeah, we were here you for guys that. were a
0: great supportive yeah. crowd for that yeah you did great you did. really yeah. liked what you said about yeah me. yeah i'm really looking forward to your feedback on the other side okay yeah, yeah. a hindsight view of the introduction absolutely <clears throat> so here we are today bringing outcomes daringly we're gonna dare greatly today okay wow, wow. and Good. bring forward peaks recovery center's outcomes out into the fold and walk through it and per the introduction the thing we're you know, that I'm curious about balancing today, right, are, you know, we're gonna showcase positive outcomes, we're gonna showcase outcomes that could be perceived as poor outcomes at the end of the day, but, you know, really at the end of the day, there are extraordinary external pressures on the resources of Peaks Recovery Centers. We work in a managed care system, right? We are uh, responsible to the payers, right? And, you know, what does that mean, for example, right? Like, well, you have an individual session, Now you got to spend 30 to 45 minutes documenting that session, right? And creating the paper trail to showcase that we did the thing, right, with the insurance company so that they pay us at the end of the day. Also, we have to, on a weekly basis, if not every few days, come up with utilization reviews and showcase these services need to continue to be authorized so we can achieve the best value proposition for the patient in front of us, right? But one of those challenges that exist is no matter what the medical necessity looks like we seem to bump up against a reality out there that is we are no longer going to provide or allow services to be rendered at this place the patient needs to be in least restrictive care possible even if we know the least restrictive care possible is a relapse a poor outcome just waiting on the other side of it uh, at the end of the day and i think charitably the insurance companies as well too you know lauren we were talking before the episode sometimes we're looking at a person in front of us and we know they're not invested in this right and they're not committed to the project and those sort of things and we'll get more into that later but i think balancing the external strategies against the resources we need not just to provide more care to more people but to provide quality and compassionate care to the individual and in addition to that in a world of our own limited resources and ability to nurture the individual down the path beyond the walls of peaks recovery centers right we do have this thing of personal responsibility that we've also talked about on this show, and how much motivation and discipline is required at the individual level to really get into something called recovery and into wellness at the end of the day. And I think not just as for our patient demographic, but I think we as a staff live that ourselves. Whether you know we're at the CrossFit gym getting told <laughs> things by the trainer, or you know me out on the trails running around and that sort of thing. Um, I think it exists within all of us to highlight that, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, we all kind of suffer, but we are all individually motivated as well too. And so, I bring that into the fold, even though I briefly spoke about it in the introduction, because that's what we're trying to balance and navigate right here: the introspection and responsibility of a treatment center, at the same time, the introspection and responsibility of the individual participating in treatment, and how do we move forward? toward outcomes in a world where there is no silver bullet. I know, Lauren, at the end of the day, if you could take a good old hammer, crack them on the head and fix it, Hmm. we would have done that already, (laughs) right? As a reality. And our lack of ability to do that also shouldn't take away from like the compassion and the approach each and every day as well, too, because we are committed professionals, right? At the end of the day, we don't necessarily have to do agency work. We could be in private practice. We could be doing a variety of different things, um, but for some reason we stay and we continue the mission forward to save lives. So, I don't, uh, I can dive right into the data, but um, you guys wanna color in anything in there? Feeling something burning inside that you wanna tell the viewers right off the bat?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, it, it, I think data is interesting, and I, and I know we're gonna go over kind of our VISTA surveys, and I know you've had Joanna Conti uh, on this podcast, um, I think a couple times, and I, and I just, um, I find our data to be really helpful and um, I interact with like our surveys all the time actually probably to a fault Um, but it does because it speaks to something um, it gives tangible explanations for things that can seem intangible you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. and I think kind of as a whole we are looking to address people's underlying trauma and underlying shame um, and underlying lack of purpose um, and then it's hard to squeeze that into motivational interviewing and CBT and solution-focused therapy. And so to have some sort of measure to say, hey, these these aspects are on track and then these aspects maybe are off track, I think um, I find it to be invigorating.
2: Yeah, I think um, being able to have, like you said, Jason, something tangible also gives, you know, our staff mm-hmm. the ability to even see like, oh, this is why I'm doing this, this is where this is what we're fighting for, because it can be, when we look at depression, when we look at substance use, it, it can be a pretty daunting thing to look at clinically. You know, are they gonna get better? Are we helping? Are they helping themselves? And so just looking at, as a whole, what outcomes look like, To be able to validate us in some kind of way because therapy is not as validating. We don't know all the time that people are growing, and then we also know that they're really growing. Mm -hmm. And so I really like to be able, or it's really cool to be able to see just what our clients are doing and and how the outcomes look.
0: Beautiful. Let's dive into it. So, of course, on our episodes, um, you know, somewhere between like uh, being charitable and straight up trashing it when we think about monotherapeutic approaches to care, just SSRIs alone to treat major depressive disorder, right? Or using cognitive behavioral therapy alone to treat major depressive disorder. Uh, If I'm recalling the history with like Dr. Alardi episodes, it's something like 85% of all people experiencing major depression in America are treated with the SSRIs or SNRIs alone. And something like Uh, Only 5 to 10 percent more of the population is being treated with a, you know, talk therapy approach like cognitive behavioral therapy alongside uh, SSRIs. So I think it's important to note that, you know, just to recapitulate those points, that we are not attacking um, that SSRIs, for example, cannot be efficacious or even life-saving. What we are highlighting is that SSRIs as a monotherapeutic intervention are incapable of resolving a complex heterogeneous condition Uh, the disorder major depression is complex and requiring many different approaches and thus the extraordinary reduction in depressive symptoms showcased in our outcomes here at Peaks through our sort of a polytherapeutic approach uh, that we'll get into Um, most so the University College of London released uh, just to recapitulate these past points uh, their meta-analysis in July of 2022 that challenged the narrative that depression has anything to do with serotonin neurotransmitters. Uh, And if this were the case, depression would be cured. Mm -hmm. And I think, and we know, most professionals would acknowledge these findings, but the issue comes about when the general public believes the issue is resolvable in the way in in which it seems to be showcased through SSRI. So uh, to quote the University College London uh, study, they say, the general public widely believes that depression has been convincingly demonstrated to be the result of serotonin or other chemical abnormalities and this belief shapes how people understand their moods, leading to a pessimistic outlook on the outcome of depression and negative expectancies about the possibility of self-regulation of mood. And uh, before diving into it, I just want to talk about the cognitive behavioral therapy approach where, generally speaking, you need about 12 weeks to administer it. Some, now there's this like intense cognitive behavioral therapy, we won't go into it. But, Per the studies, you generally need 12 weeks of talk therapy, at least once per week, over that period to start resolving what are the mood issues, right, and starting, and giving the individual access to self-regulation. The fundamental assumption is that a thought precedes a mood. Therefore, learning to substitute healthy thoughts for negative thoughts will improve a person's mood, self-concept, behavior, and physical state. So, I think All of this research is out there and available to the public at any given time uh, where you can roll through the monotherapeutic values, 15 to 30% efficacy of SSRIs held alone, Never mind all of the consequences of taking those medications, right? Major depression, take SSRIs, the symptomology of that can be increased anxiety, okay? Maybe you insert SNRIs or whatever to help navigate that, but we're just pushing the monotherapeutic value back and forth. And as we'll showcase within our own data sets here, these medications clearly do not Uh, at least greatly support individuals in long-term treatment outcomes at the end of the day. And that's visible within the data sets. The meds alone are not going to get them through this, uh, historically speaking. And so at peaks, never mind all the insurance stuff and noise, we've really tried to come up with this monotherapeutic, or excuse me, polytherapeutic approach of, yes, medications, but they take four to six weeks to achieve efficacy, if they achieve efficacy at all. What are we doing in the meantime? We have talk therapy. We're going to do the cognitive behavioral therapy thing, right? We've inserted a movement team because we're trying to promote not exercise in the have to go to the gym bench press through all the tough things, right? But to just move and to walk around and to get some sunshine on your face and these types of things that Dr. Mm-hmm. Alardi has brought in that he even said, it sounds like grandma could have given us this advice to, you know, kind of get well at the end of the day. And I think that, you know, as well too, and we can get into it from like a future outcomes perspective when we think about You know our our phones and TV screens and that sort of thing, right? How much of that is impacting the individual? And so how relevant is it really to remove those devices from the individual because it's a part of the process of suffering, right? And coming at it, we seem to, at least within a 30 to 45 day modality and also our extended IOP program, seem to arrive at some pretty impressive results before the individual walks out the door and goes on their journey off on their own with the toolkit in hand, right? And we'll talk about the impressive data out the, going out the door and then sort of this sharp fall off that seems to take place on the other side where we'll hopefully try to navigate this kind of personal responsibility thing. But the progress during treatment, so 71% of all clients who come into Peaks Recovery Centers in these surveys, this data set is over uh, a three year period uh, from I believe 2020 to the present. Uh, if not the whole historical 2018 to the present period. But 71% of clients reported experiencing depressive symptoms at their intake survey. And of of clients uh, who took the survey again prior to discharge, only 13% were reporting symptomology. So from day one to the last day of PEAKS Recovery Centers per the surveys, there's an 82% reduction in symptomology. And against the backdrop of monotherapeutic values, that's a major victory. Same is true for clients in progress with anxiety systems. And so f- to be clear for the viewers out there, the surveys are the PHQ-9 for the depression, the GAD-7 for, or GAD7 for anxiety. 69% report uh, symptoms of anxiety at the intake server. Survey, prior to discharge, 16%. It's a 77% reduction in anxiety symptoms. Trauma responses, the PCL-6, is the survey taken at the time of admission, 68% report Uh, symptoms of uh, trauma symptoms and prior to discharge that drops to 20% for a 71% reduction and then client progress on overall feelings uh, between terrible and poor 71% report feeling terrible or poor at the time of admission and it goes down to 3% prior to discharge or a 96% reduction in symptomology for those individuals. Finally criminal justice offenses 21% at intake 12 months post treatment dropped to 1% a 95% reduction from engaging in the criminal uh, justice system and satisfaction with treatment overall uh, 75% very satisfied 20% satisfied 95% of peaks clients are either very satisfied or satisfied with the treatment outcome and 1% or less than 1% very unsatisfied so against the backdrop of the monotherapeutic values monotherapeutic approaches in and of themselves. We seem to really be kicking those monotherapeutic, you know, uh, outcomes in the ass right here at Peaks Recovery Centers. And before we kind of dive into the post-treatment outcomes, hmm. what, are the, what are the kids doing after treatment? Um, we get to see something really beautiful. We get to see people kind of in the best state of their life, right? We get to see this real healing. We get to see pink clouds. We get to see all the things along the way and differently than those monotherapeutic values, you know, from the clinical position, are we just throwing things at a wall and these are the victories, would this have happened in any other approach? Or you know, Jason, and both of you have been here long enough to know the difference between kind of old, t- you know, peaks approach, lack of a curriculum, these types of things into a curriculum and into a staff that can really wrap around all the individuals at any given time. Um, even if that's not the common experience at all times, it is our value system. What are we seeing against the backdrop of monotherapeutic values within treatment culture that you guys believe is really driving these outcomes, positively speaking, for the time that they spend with us?
1: So what's our magic sauce, basically, or how are we doing this? Because it's not a
0: silver bullet, right? The numbers aren't zero at the end of the day, right? And we put a lot of energy into it. And it also, you know, if a medication takes four to six weeks, you know, some individuals are leaving at 30 days, but reporting positively, their depressive symptoms are down at day 30. So it seems like these other interventions you toss at it can really nurture Mm -hmm. alongside the medication efficacy, if there is any, uh, the nurturing of of symptomology. So, you know, what is the operational thing that is working?
1: I mean, if I were to summarize it, I would say, our goal at peaks is to get to the root cause of what is driving, um, whatever is bringing somebody in, uh, to our treatment center. And, and you listed kind of the, the PHQ nine, um, and the other, you know, the GAD, uh, and these other things, this isn't like people are coming here and getting like a camp high right. and just like, being like, Hey, I was out of my life for a week and, uh, we went canoeing and it was just a lot of fun <laughs> and that felt great. Um, people like we're treating suffering, like people walking into peaks are in the middle of suffering. Like if, if your scoring is depressed on the PHQ-9, like you're depressed, like things are not going well. And, um, so focusing on the root causes of that, uh, but utilizing relationships, utilizing, um, you know, what, what Rogers called unconditional positive regard, but really trying to connect, um, well with people and, um, meeting them where they are. And, and that, that's a cliche in a way. But like, if that's at the forefront of our mind, if we really are like, Hey, you're, you're a human, we're human too. Um, and we can kind of meet you in this space. I think that that to me, so we use, you know, we use evidence-based practices for sure. Uh, we put our own flair on them, uh, to be certain, but it is, it's, it's the culture and it's the, um, it's the really, uh, it's, Using our relationships with our clients and using our relationships with one another to actually get to what is truly going on for somebody underneath um, the symptomology or their um, their coping mechanisms or or brilliant strategies for overcoming uh, their underlying issues. Yeah. What do you say, Lauren? You
2: know, I think to add to that, kind um, to piggyback off that, um, is this idea of like one of our core values is that one team, one shift mentality, right? I know that when I walk in the door, that I am going to sit down with our you know, medical director, Chris, and I'm going to talk to the residential team, and I, admissions is always going to be in our rounds every day, the meeting we have every single day. like It's consistent and constant communication about the client. It, I think it is, um, no offense if anyone takes offense to this, but I think it's an ignorant way to, of thinking that one size fits all. It's Every single client that walks into our door is different. Every single human being is different. We have to be able to look at it in that lens. We can't just say, hey, CBT, let's go for all, right? Because you know, one of our clients over here might have distorted thinking patterns, but then the other one over here might have a really good grip on their thinking patterns and just can't really handle the trauma that they're kind of holding in their body. And so it's, it's about kind of a multi-dimensional approach of what do you think medical, what do you think clinical, what do you think admissions, residential, Um, even you know all of our safety team and everything like that we work together as a team and being able to say oh wow, this client who struggles with depression is so much different than this client that struggles with depression. This client that uses is so much different than this client that uses. So we have to separate them, we have to. It's not fair to them if we put them in the same kind of box, I guess. It's about learning about our clients, getting to the root cause, understanding their struggle in a way that I can now connect and understand you more. And we're not even, you know, I go into a session with our substance use primary clients we might not even mention substances the whole time Mm. because let's talk about the person and the behaviors that go along with the person. So I think it's just a one team, one shift thing.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. High level. Dive in a little further. (laughs) if If we're, you know, we were talking before the episode and a little bit in the introduction as well too. Sometimes it just feels like we're looking at somebody who is not committed. Maybe probation forced them into treatment. Maybe the family system upheld boundaries and Uh, you know, the pathology there is like, you know, treatment or no support. And so individuals, you know, begrudgingly join, you know, the treatment protocols and they will go through it, they'll mark on the calendar, I'm out of here in 45 days and that sort of thing. And the outcome will be sort of abysmal. I think from a treatment center standpoint, you know, even though we know that's going on, right, I think there's always hope that something will latch on, even if like recovery is not on the other side of the door, maybe it's like, I know I can reach out for help now, and maybe even like I'm not gonna bother my family. I know what I'm about to do on the other side of this, but I can separate that, and maybe there's some healing within that. But you know, within a treatment episode, I think for the viewers out there, you know, maybe highlight a little bit about what it what it's like to kind of feel like you have a success story and kind of right in front of you clinically, and what it's like to be like, dang it, how do I just get this person to know there's help out there and to make the right choice when maybe they hit rock bottom to use old language.
1: Yeah. You know, and I, I, Brandon, that's a great point because um, outcomes are tricky, mm. right? Uh, it, it can be really easy to be very binary about outcomes. Um, do, do I expect that everybody coming into peaks uh, for depression will never feel depressed again? Like that seems really unrealistic to be honest with you. And, and I don't think at any point do we set that expectation out there And, you know, for some, even if they are, um, strongly encouraged by external forces to be at peaks, nobody's at a 0% motivated, I would say. Like, so I, I think if we can get somebody from 10% wanting willing to change their life or to 20% realizing they have a problem, like that feels like progress, but, but going back to, to like, I think setting the expectation, like helping people, Build a path. If they fall into depression again or into addiction again, that they can um, find their path back out or realize that there is a, a, a path out. That that is invaluable. And I in um, I was talking to one of our clinicians this week about you know a client that likely is going to re-enter uh, a challenging family situations upon discharge and like how are they going to accomplish their goals? And this just isn't a great setting, but there just isn't really any drive or motivation to change that. Um, I'm like we we are planting a ton of seeds in this person and and they are getting better and if If the progress that they make while in our care leads them to make a different decision, even if it's two years from now, that still feels like a great outcome, even if it doesn't show up on a on a twelve month outcome study
2: well, and we've talked about that, and I was telling you this a little bit before the episode is that we have to look at what successes or outcomes are. If you go into um, any industry, in this industry, and you say, oh, in order to be successful in this industry, I need to have all clients and they'll never relapse. That is an unrealistic expectation to set. And now you're setting that on the client. Now you are putting forth your kind of expectations of them, saying you can't ever relapse, right, because then this wouldn't be a success. And the reality of this is, is that every single client that comes through is going to relapse in some kind of way. Right, maybe they don't go back to substances but their behaviors are gonna relapse. And um, it's about how are they relapsing differently? How are you, you know, you, you still picked up that drink but you called us every single day asking for help about it. That's a different relapse because what you usually do is you drink and you run away and you don't talk to anybody. So you're relapsing differently now, right? And so also going into this place of you know if the client is not motivated being able to say like okay I'm still gonna show up for you if you don't want to do any work today we're gonna sit here and stare at each other for an hour we've had a client in the past say I'm just not talking to you guys I don't trust therapists cool. well we're just gonna sit here for an hour just so you know that at least I'm here at least someone's not giving up on you and it's those little subliminal messages that we give that I think are really a part of this outcome because it's not hey you need to get sober or else it's hey let's try to get sober and what does that look like and how can we help you and if you don't get sober then like how do we help you then and there is a little bit of part part of this and we've talked about this on another episode where there has to be some motivation within the client Mm -hmm. the client has to put forth some kind of motivation or there will be some kind of relapse or curse and there is that part where where is personal responsibility come in right where do i go to a 45 day treatment and say hey i'm going to take some of these things with me or i'm going to leave them there it's up to you again going into a place of if you are lying to me about what's coming up for you it doesn't it only hurts you so let's try to figure out a way to make this a little bit more comfortable. We don't have to talk about your trauma all day if you don't want to talk about your trauma all day, but we let's try to get something out of the session in some kind of way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, I, I think there's, a, there's an important caveat to the motivation part of the conversation that it also requires discipline, mm-hmm. right? Like, I went, went running yesterday, good old eight miles, ratcheted up trying to do my Boston Marathon thing, qualified for all of that, but my motivation yesterday was pretty low right but the discipline was like tie your shoes get in the damn car go down to the trail and just start running it doesn't have to be uh 100 miles an hour all the thing you know it doesn't have to be fast it just just start just get out there right and over time i think that inserting that discipline is also going to be supportive of motivating behaviors also we'll get back into that i just wanted to highlight that so we have a uh, a checkbox to come back to uh, in that regard uh, when we comes down to having conversations about individual responsibility as well too in the process. But so viewers out there, they're listening, they're watching this thinking, okay, Lauren's now just sitting patiently quiet in front of a, you know, a client now for an hour. Mm-hmm. Maybe something was said, maybe nothing was shared. Maybe it's just you know shooting the shit or whatever to um help inspire uh, a rapport that inevitably leads an individual to start talking about the things that gets to the root causes so we can move forward right but the american healthcare system is wildly expensive and you don't need you don't need me here at peaks to tell you that family <laughs> systems the amount of american healthcare debt all the charts all those things Right? And it can cost anywhere from ten dollars to $100,000 to go to a treatment episode for 30 to 45 days you know, in that regard. And for a lot of people out there, a relapse that immediately happens on the other side of, a, of the fence for something that's so costly, never mind insurance policies and ever-increasing deductible and out-of-pocket costs for the viewers out there against the backdrop of ever-increasing profitability of the insurance companies uh, out there. Um, it's really expensive, and I think out of that, not just the desperation and hope for their loved one to get well, but the uh, lack of resources to continue to do this over and over and over again. And what, would we, what can we say from your guys' lens to the family systems out there so desperate and lacking resources, hearing something like, my loved one's not motivated, why am I paying for this? you know at the end of the day and I don't think there's a simple answer to that I think it's complex but we should talk about the challenges of an industry right because at Peaks Recovery Centers you know we've got 36 beds at least for right now and we've got about nearly 100 staff members to wrap around those you know one to three ratio in one way shape or form and the cost of that in an inflated market cost of living all of these types of things at the end of the day we talk about it with our staff I can't afford a home I, want, I got a master's degree, I got $90,000 in debt, right? Staff and people as employees go through their own suffering in the world and have their own requirements, and at the same time, a company trying to displace its profitability to support that, right? There's all this tension that exists, right? But on the other side of that, family interest systems aren't interested in how a business is operating, all those types of things. So what can we do to support families better, do you think, from an outcomes perspective, in a world in which it's at times very difficult to motivate the individual, and at the same time, resources are possibly limited for the mm-hmm. family system, desperate for an outcome on the other side.
1: I mean, that, Brandon, that is a tricky question. It's, and such it's such like a tricky the, question. Yeah, it's like, don't mess like, it up. Yeah, yeah. This is live. Nail it. There's one answer. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's, it's almost an impossible question yeah. to answer if you ask me, like, other than, you know, Sitting here um, as a parent, and I, I've alluded to it a little bit. Like you know, I, I have a son who had a significant health issue when he was, you know, ten years old, and um, you know, I, we had to find the right hospital and the right doctors to to do a surgery, and that happened to be in Nashville at Vanderbilt Hospital. Actually, um, today's the anniversary of that, and um, and. Uh, and even when we got there, like we knew it was kind of a coin flip, like whether or not he was, it was going to be successful. And if it wasn't successful, um, the results were going to be catastrophic. Um, and we put a lot of resources, a lot of resources, a lot of time, a lot of, like I had a practice that I had to just kind of walk away from for a while. And, um, and there wasn't a guarantee and there isn't even, even if the healthcare issue isn't a mental health thing, there aren't guarantees with all this stuff, but, um, I can just say from my parents' hearts, which isn't why you had me on here, but like it was, it was worth the risk for obvious reasons. And, and fortunately we had a good outcome. Um, otherwise I probably wouldn't be able to talk kind of casually about it. But like, um, you know, it was, it, it, it was a, it was a calculus a little bit. <laughs> um, and, and I didn't, you know, what I didn't have, my story is different. Cause like, it's not like my son wasn't motivated to get better. He just was too young to understand that in a lot of ways. Um, but there aren't guarantees uh, a lot of times. And, and to your point, Brandon, like, you know, getting treatment for substance use or a mental health issue is, um, is not cheap. And there, is, uh, there can be a motivational factor at play here. Um, but I can also say uh, I have worked for a ph- pharmaceutical company as well. And we had a whole education program about encouraging people to take their diabetes medica- at, at medication because that felt like it had a stigma too, or people would start to feel better. And so they'd stop taking their insulin. It's like, that isn't a sign that you're getting better. That's a sign that it's working. And, and like, there's a ton of education that went into that. And people, um, it, you know, if you know somebody with diabetes, like that sometimes happens where people lose motivation to treat it. And uh, so this isn't, it isn't uncommon for people to have uh, shows with motivations um, at times. And I do think as as skilled clinicians that we have at peaks and hopefully at a lot of other places like helping to enhance motivation, um, is a big part of our training and a big part of, of what we walk through. Um, and that, but that can be a journey and it can be a risk, I would say.
2: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) that's a hard question, Brandon. I on the spot. Yeah. 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 Resource wise, it becomes tricky. I think, if we look at motivation wise we look at i'm paying fifty thousand dollars i've heard so many people say this is your last one there's not another one after this i can't afford it and um i think you know clinton nicholson as everyone knows um he has this kind of like saying he's told us in the clinical team is that you know we are guides not gods i think we get into a place within the field where people are like, why aren't you fixing my child? Why aren't you fixing my husband? Why aren't you, why can't you just fix them? And it, it, there's this part of it that it's like, I don't have the power to fix anybody. I have the ability to walk with someone through a really hard time, help them understand themselves and um, be able to look and say, oh, here are my issues and this is how I work on that whether they take that and work on it is essentially up to them first of all and i think second of all there's there's a part of this that we cannot force clients to do anything we they have to have some kind of autonomy because 30 to 45 days is a very short amount of time and it's really unfortunate that insurance companies um, don't allow access to it more and that's a whole nother thing right but we have to understand that within that time span, we're doing the best we can in order to allow clients to understand themselves and and find motivation, find themselves. And you know, we can look at motivation in two ways too. Are we have the de- depressive clients who literally just can't motivate themselves, or is it the you know clients who are just like, "This is crap. I don't care about any of this." Um, but at the end of the day, again, going into that personal responsibility is we are the biggest motivators at peaks i think that our clients get incredibly annoyed with us at times because of how much we talk to them and how much we check in and all of those things and then and at the end of the day we do the best we can and we meet the client where they're at and we understand that behaviors are a big part of this process we treat those behaviors we tend to those behaviors and we see them um, in the best way we we absolutely can And it is unfortunate that more resources aren't available because 30 to 45 days, this is the long game. Like we are, you will do this forever. If you struggle with mental health issues, with substance use, that is what you're gonna be working with forever. So how do you maintain that and how do you continue continuing care? Um, I think just to highlight this too, a thought I had was, I think that's why our family service is so uh, valuable because it is really that outlet to say, like, we hear you. We hear your frustration. We hear your fear because family, they run off fear. Of course they do. And a lot of the time, like, that fear comes out in a way of, like, why aren't you helping? And we are, and there's only so much we can do. Um, so I think family services, continuing care, whatever we can do to make sure the client is seen or hurt you know I I know that our uh, case manager supervisor Rachel Jenkins she still gets phone calls six months later of clients saying hey can you find me this treatment center to go to we are going to help you as much as we can but again our hands are tied a lot of the time with insurance and money and all of those things we don't really have a lot of power over that
0: yeah and and I appreciate you both fielding the question in real time. Certainly, you know, from my position, like, I just believe in transparency and I believe in the challenges. If we are going to continue to move forward in any sort of sense of progress within an industry that is fraught with challenges and certainly fraught with fragmentation, if we aren't going to have honest discussions about its reality and its condition, um, I don't know how we're going to get to anything like a silver bullet at, you know, some point. And to that, I think, you know, the reason also for asking the question is, family system finds a website, right? All websites are gonna have a pitch of like hope, oh, we can do this, we can treat these depression, we can treat the substance use disorder, we can do that, we do a lot of that, we can do the and all these types of things. And so in a market, and in an industry that sells itself in that way, I think it creates a level of hope um, that we know from outcome data isn't necessarily true on the other side of the boat. Um, I. Believe in what our website says. I believe in what our admissions team tells individuals on the other side because they aren't given a sheet that says Hey, you have to say these top five bullet points to bring somebody in because we know statistically 95% of the time it'll work if you just tell them these things right our admissions team is empowered to state what we do and to reflect on that positively Um, and So I think being honest and open, you know for me, hopefully not just creates grace for uh, you know, providers and clinicians such as yourselves, but an open-mindedness to really investigating a treatment program and what it means to be a part of it at the end of the day and so I'm thinking about a treatment center somewhere up north around here and they have ads out there right now that says it starts with keep your cell phone and your iPad come to treatment today. right? We live in a, in a world where we've talked about on this episode multiple times now the conflict and the um, sickness that is derived from uh, the, the tools of social media and our phones that mess with our dopaminergic structures, right? And so we know more than ever, it's not just taking a cell phone away like the old kind of way of Peaks, right? We're going to take your phone because, you know, you need to have some gratitude and you got to pay for this and do all that sort of thing we've really shifted into a world of like, this actually is a problem. And we need to have a conversation about it. Therapeutically, we gotta talk about and approach it because it's continuing to keep you stuck in your bed in a depressive state. It's keeping you close to your dealer at the end of the day from a substance abuse place. What is the relationship between this device and the pornography that you're watching? How is that disrupting your relationship when it's always accessible like that? But we live in a market of opportunities for which the individual thinks I need my phone, and there's also this relationship i also wish clinton was here because i know he has insights into this but of like the phone is very much a part of the world so why would we take that away but at the same time it's creating so much conflict in the individual's life and to me to market to the individual to get them into a program feels financially driven and family systems should be aware of that because i don't think we're approaching that as an industry if that becomes the peaks recovery center ad at the end of the day I think we're about getting people into care versus about actually getting them into care so we can treat the condition. Yeah,
1: it it sounds like, you know, come to our weight loss program and eat all the pizza and cheeseburgers you want. Like, that's what I hear when you say that. Like, yeah, yeah, you'll get a lot of people for that. It sounds appealing, um, but it is like, that's a little bit um, short-sighted, I would say. Because you don't know what somebody's walking in with, whether it's a pornography addiction or they may, their drug dealer may live two blocks away. You don't know. Like that feels absurd um, and risky. And and of course it appeals to somebody to be like, cool, I can keep my phone, I don't have to disrupt my life at all uh, to come to this program. Um, And you know, and like this is a thing, and like we certainly allow people reasonable uh, access to the outside world, and as well we should, but um, unfettered access to that stuff just feels like if nothing changes, nothing changes, to quote AA. (laughs)
2: But I think the other part of that that kind of bleeds into this conversation is the instant gratification crisis that we all struggle with is, well, my child, my spouse, whatever it is, they didn't get better at your place. They left a week ago. So maybe we have to give them time to get better. Maybe we have, they were in a bubble for 45 days, went back into the world, went back into their family system, got triggered, got overwhelmed, drank, did whatever relapse in their depression all these different things and now oh well you didn't fix them that we don't give them the time to be able to heal and so if we look at it right are we as a society sabotaging the relapse process in a, in a way as well saying oh you relapsed you failed you're wrong you're bad in this equation so what are they gonna do they're going to withdraw and they're not gonna keep moving forward so what if we continue what if we change that instead of oh okay, you are going to struggle and we are just bear with you with that. We work through that with you instead of nope, you're done, you screwed everything up, there's that instant gratification. I need you to be sober now, I need you to be better now, I need your anxiety to go away now because then that means everything worked and everything's going to be okay. It's just kind of, that's not, that's fundamentally flawed in our thinking if we think that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more and just to just uh, send that point home for like the family systems out there. I've continued to acknowledge that we, you're being sold something on the front end. And Peaks is trying to sell something that we do here, a polythera- polytherapeutic approach. We throw a lot of the kitchen sink at the individual with the hope that our long-term treatment outcomes can. Uh, sustain, and at the end of the day as well, too, I think we wholeheartedly show up um, with mission, vision, and core values in front of us, you know, versus the dollars. But the dollars are really important thing because we have to have a staff and we have to have the resources to, you know, um, insert that at the end of the day. And at the, end of the, uh, was, at the end of the day, to say it again, I think at some point, too, we just have to know our hearts, you know, as well, too, in the process and what we are dedicated to and what we are actually trying to come up with. 45 days in treatment, you know, our owners, for the viewers out there, for as long as we're able to, we're able to sit in front of patients and talk about, um, you know, how they're doing and how they're succeeding and what the troubles are and all that sort of thing. And uh, so, you know, every Friday, you know, Chris and Bobby will bring forward a list of complaints and you guys get them throughout the entire process as well too. <laughs> but what I love about hearing about those complaints, it's like, well, I, I could, I need a, like a binder that like from X, Y, and Z tells me exactly what's going on in my day to day. Okay, sure, that's something like we can work toward, what we're not hearing is like the therapy let me down. I didn't feel cared for. I didn't feel loved. And so there are this incredible push of medical, clinical and residential interventions toward the individual that I think has them feeling loved. Um, and it's what I'm stating here is it's nice to just have it like a binders missing or the food could be a little bit better because we're not a kitchen and we're not a restaurant and those types of things. And so, um, so I guess at the end of this as well too, like there is a sense of like knowing our heart, and I think the family systems, especially those who entertain our family services, because we also have that troubled outcome of like families like don't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about how I traumatized them, you know, that type of thing that, you know, is um, can dislodge outcomes in that way or leave a person feeling like my outside support world doesn't care about that. Uh, Anyways, the reality here is that I think when people get to know us and they listen to us and we invite them in, family services, individuals or otherwise, they get to see that we actually care. Um, And regardless of how they leave treatment, I think that is the underlying feature for which has helped us succeed in our outcomes and our reviews and those types of things uh, at the end of the day uh, as well, too. So any case, to the family systems out there, the research and the questions you ask going into a treatment episode i think matters greatly and i know you're living in fear out there given the condition and the circumstances you're seeing in front of you but i believe wholeheartedly in a in the united states of america where there's almost 15,000 treatment centers to go to that we're all not doing great things and (laughs) to be curious about that and compare and contrast and really formulate a treatment episode for which you believe your loved one is going to be best nurtured within and if it starts with you keep your cell phone and your ipad it feels like the motivations are not about the individual but the individual in a bed at the end of the day mm-hmm. and so i'll just continue to antagonize because i think it's essential here because i think for a lot of family systems like johnny sees the ad and he's like oh, i get my phone i'm going to that treatment what a success when you're living in fear But at the same time it's not generally a situation or setting that's motivated by something other than that head-to-bed mentality Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying that's always true but it might always be true (laughs) (laughs) uh, at the end so uh, with that let's uh, dive into factors favoring abstinence success so at month one post treatment 52 percent of patients who successfully completed all recommended treatment reported having been abstinent since discharge In comparison, only 34% of patients who did not complete treatment reported abstinence one month post-treatment. And so within, I think one of the challenging things to the point of like the data sets, Jason, that to allude to is like 48% of the respondents who uh, did not complete treatment didn't answer the phone. And 38% who did complete treatment didn't answer the phone. So the outcome's up or they're down. You know, if more people had answered the phone, what would it look like? We don't know, but 52%, so you almost have what, a 38%, somewhere in their chance, greater chance of succeeding post-treatment outcome by finishing the treatment protocols and going through the programming. And the same data sets are true, 44% to 34% at month six, and 43% to 28%, those in recovery, those not in recovery, um, for those who finished treatment that didn't finish treatment. And the longer in treatment episode here is kind of like what I wanted to showcase yeah same good we're on the same page (laughs) yeah yeah that the longer you spend in this not just brute forcing it but the the continued participation and curiosity and toward internal wellness at the end of the day is clearly driving an outcome and I think that's so important because my I i keep i think more so over the past several episodes i keep reintroducing like personal responsibility and individual responsibility and motivation and discipline on top of it but it's not a brute force thing you have to do what we say and then carry that out it's like you really have to participate in this we can't hold your hand outside of peaks recovery centers Um, and so let's just dive into that a little bit and hear that sort of clinical insight into what you guys are seeing for those because again, it's a 52%. We don't know what happened entirely, the other 48%. We know 9% of them used in the last uh, 30 days. And, but the other 38, 39% we couldn't get a hold of, so mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what's going on there. But the reality is it's a, it's a far more likelihood of succeeding if you engage in this. Mm-hmm. What's going
1: on? Yeah, and I think, <clears throat> mean, Brandon, that, that's a great question. And I, and I think the data you're looking at Um, I mean, I think it's really clearly treatment outcome success is highly correlated to length of time in treatment and not at a residential level of care, (laughs) like not at the highest level of care, like just having ongoing clinical contact Uh, and it appears from our data, but this is held true across a lot of studies that I've seen that the longer you have kind of clinical contact, even if at the end, even if for six months after care, even if you're just going to group a week and an individual session a week or something like that um the likelihood of long-term success particularly with substance use disorder but i'm sure the data would hold true for uh depression it's clear that that those that's the most predictive thing we can do right like we have to, to maintain um what people experience in residential care they can keep experiencing that but they have to kind of maintain some contact um, with the community and, and probably with um, professional care. I think that part feels very true. I also think, um, you know, Lauren mentioned it a little while ago, you know, people can kind of force their way or pretend to be motivated or, or you know, kind of white knuckle it, if you will, for 30 or 45 days, but if, if somebody is having clinical contact for six months or seven months. Like it's almost, there has to be some sort of internal motivation going on there, right? Like um, th- that has to be a component too, where uh, as, as I think people go down in levels of care, I think um, we're handing people more and more the reins of their life and more and more ability to kind of make their own decisions and um, and with that, I think the the implied implic or the implication then is that the longer somebody's in care, the more internally motivated they are, just by definition. That's my thought.
0: Yeah, and maybe before we get your you know input here too as well, Lauren, it's fascinating because sometimes we'll turn to the individual and be like, Yeah, you're not ready to leave, and they're like, You just want me here for more money. Yep. Yeah, you know, at mm-hmm. the end of the day. But the the motivation, is, yeah. That is true. The longer you stay in treatment, the organization makes money. That's how business works. Yeah. That's how an investment, that's how any business works. The more donuts you buy, the better Dunkin' Donuts is at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Uh, but the reality is, is that if you leave treatment seven to 30 days, uh, within seven to 30 days at Peaks Recovery Centers, you have a 16% chance of recovery. If you stay with us for 181 plus days through IOP Extended Programming Alumni, it goes up to 56% chance, right? we yeah sure money in the process right but the way treatment works it's more expensive in the beginning and you make less money over time so the longer you stay in care the less money I'm making from a chief executive (laughs) officer position right but the value is recovery is better guaranteed at the end of the day right and I Mm -hmm. think it's important to acknowledge that there is no relationship between longer and care and more money it's more care if you want to go to detox over and over and over again that's more money for whatever institution exists out there that's playing that game. The the more you move through programming, it's going like this, you know, they don't wanna pay for detox all the way through outpatient level of care, right? It's more money at the beginning, less money over time. So when Peaks asks you to commit to the process, it's not because of more money, it's because the outcome is clear.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it goes into this place of we are habitual creatures, right? So if I, I always tell this to the client, so if I, If I have a pattern and behavior that I have been practicing for over 20 years, and then I go to treatment for 30 days, and then I'm like, I'm good after that, how am I going to expect to change a pattern and behavior that I've been practicing for that long? over a course of 30 days. It goes into this place of like thinking patterns, right? If I have a way that I think and I stay in my shame and I ruminate and all these different things and then I go to treatment and I'm like, okay, this is starting to get better. Then I move out of treatment, I move out of care completely, and then I start going back to my life. Again, habitual creature. I'm going to start falling back into those thinking patterns. I'm going to start going into those behaviors because there's comfort in those. It's what I've known my entire life. It's all I've known, but forever, and so I am always gonna fall back on that. And so being able to have longer-term care gives you the ability to continue to challenge those behaviors, challenge those patterns, interrupt them when they're there. And really, it goes into a place of like, you are changing the way your brain works. If I'm constantly telling myself how much I suck, then that's the way my brain works. And so the silly, we, we talk about affirmations, right, is, okay, like I want you to write down five affirmations of yourself tonight. For me, I'm like, what? I don't. Know. What? Sure. I'm. Oh, I'm strong. I'm beautiful. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. But it really does help change the way your brain thinks. Like, I am now. Oh, 45 days in, I'm actually starting to look at myself in the mirror and liking what I see when I never have before. And so, if you take care away, you take everything away. It's only going to make sense to return back to that place of almost like homeostasis, right? Is where this is where I'm comfortable. My depression is where I live. There, I'm gonna go back.
0: And so much of treatment too, I mean, there's so many like metaphors for this process, you know, and I'm just gonna to continue to talk about my running because <laughs> the beginning of that process was like, get on a treadmill, do a 10 to 12 minute mile. Okay, that was exhausting. Okay, I'm motivated to achieve more of that. Well, I need the discipline to keep returning to the treadmill, inevitably I figured out, you don't have to be on a treadmill, you can run anywhere, Brandon, uh, in that regard, and, and moved beyond that. but sort of as I moved through it as a journey, right, it becomes like, I want to be a little competitive, so I join a race, we go do Garden of the Gods or something like that. Okay, that was fun and exciting. Like, how do I do better? I noticed that like, oh, my, you know, my hip flexors are getting sore after each run. Oh, form then becomes a thing, right? It's a constant experience in, for me in running of learning and then, okay, now my form's down, I feel good. Okay, my nutrition's down. I'm not taking care of myself from a nutritional value and I feel fatigued and tired as I run these distances. Um, you know, all of the things that can come alongside of it. And I think that, you know, not to extend the metaphor too much further, but it's it's true for like a recovery journey. And I too am not just this individual who arrived in a CEO role, you know, once upon a time as I got a master's degree in business or anything like that. I also come from a history of like traumatic experiences. And I too have suffered in the world. You two in front of me have suffered in this world and our shared stories in that way of things and our path forward individually has not been linear whatsoever. (laughs) And so I think in that way, just trying to share with the viewers out there, this isn't all on the individual, but there is a sense of felt personal responsibility in our own journeys that has helped us achieve at least where we're at today and so nagging it's like you step in front of a therapist, and if you want to go in front of a therapist, I'm not going to do it here with you guys. But, I you mean, know, you kind of are right yeah, now but in front of the therapist. Therapist or, Yeah, it would be inside. You guys know if I said something like this, like, no, my relationship with my wife is perfect. Oh, okay. Oh. okay. Yeah, tell us about that. Tell us, yeah. what, is, we have, tell us what that perfection looks yeah. like. I know where this is going. Don't am me in front of all my friends <laughs> out there. But it, but it goes into
2: the what we were talking about before, right? When a client is leaving and they're like, oh, I'm not nervous at all. I know I got this. I'm going to be so... Nobody, you should be nervous. You need to have healthy fear in that. Like yeah. there has to be realistic expectations when we're talking about this. You're going back to a family home that you triggered you more than anything else. Yeah. So you, let's be realistic. Yeah,
0: and you know, to the running point too. I'm practicing for a marathon way out in July. That is one day, and I'm sixty some days or seventy days mm-hmm. away from it right now. All of this training opportunity guarantees nothing in that moment. And I know that. And that also creates an extraordinary amount of fear like and potential passivity of like, why am I even trying? Because I can't guarantee that future moment. All I know is I can show up in that moment in the best way, shape, or form, irregardless, and whatever mistakes or things I go through, just represents the future opportunity on the other side. And I think that recovery works in a very similar sort of way. There is a fear that it's not going to work, right? There is a fear and a resistance to doing it. What's all the work if I can't guarantee the outcome? Drugs make me happy. If you can't guarantee my happiness out here in the future, like why would I even bother with this process at the end of the day? And so I think we get it. And I think that's also what I'm trying to showcase and highlight for people out there that just because we're in the position of an industry and we are able to collect a paycheck and an income resulting from it uh, does not mean we, don't, um, we aren't a part of this process as well too in front of our you know patients every day. Differently than them too, we gotta kind of like hit the door, leave our personal crap behind us and like walk through and, you know, in a way sort of showcase like you got this because I got this, you know. but we don't always got this. And I think I just want to represent that because it's not us in this position of perfection and decrees. And we, through that lens of knowledge alone, know what's best for you. Like we also struggle individually. And I think all across America, people struggle Mm. in that way of things. And I think that's just worth highlighting as well, too, here. Um, And so what we're talking about is also a lived experience Um, in that regard, and through that lived experience we can showcase it's gonna be challenging, but the fruits of everything on the other side of this are certainly worthwhile. Also, every time I get to that thing of like I succeeded, it's a new opportunity and something else has been highlighted for me that I have to work on. Um, And that's what makes this a lifelong journey. Not Mm -hmm. just recovery as a process, but self-actualizing awareness, Mm -hmm. you know, the best possible version of ourselves um, is not going to be out there guaranteed to us, nor in a pill, nor in any monotherapeutic approach at the end of the day. So
2: I think, yes, I do have something to say, Um, which is a big surprise. Uh, I think on that, it's where we start to challenge how we measure success. I think about a client who um, came through our program last year. Um, he didn't get out of bed for 30 days and um, we just sat with him and we, we encouraged him and we, you know we talked to him and um, after that 30 days, he started getting out of bed and he started doing the work. And, and he found a way to love himself in a way that he never was able to in the past, and he never, really received from his family in a big way. Um, Unfortunately, this client left and and he, um, after a couple months, he did pass away. And to me, right, it'd be like, that's the ultimate failure, that's what we think about. And on the other hand, well, no, there's success in that because he found a way to love himself to the point where when he went home, his family reached back out and said, we have never seen him this way before. Like he he is more confident than we've seen him, he is, more motivated and all of these different things. And so how do we measure outcome and success? Maybe it's by seeing the behaviors and everything that's changed, not necessarily are they staying sober or are they not falling back into their depression and anxiety and all of that.
1: Absolutely. Freeze, solid. Yeah, I, I was hung up on your running metaphor, so I'm just gonna, that was too deep to so, go there um, yeah
2: yeah, I yeah see that from you both
0: yeah um yeah that I think if anything to the running it's just there's no guaranteed markers like in this process and for as much as I want to believe I'm going to hit that Boston qualifying time like I know there's potential of missing that mark but it can't be perceived as a failure what's going to be true for me I believe now through working on myself for three three and a half years or however long now that it will represent an opportunity. And I know when I discover that, I will move forward accordingly uh, in that regard. But it's been a three and a half year journey again to that moment Mm -hmm. of opportunity. And so aftercare choices, uh, just to kind of wrap up the data here, actions taken for at least six months post-treatment that appear to have helped patients remain abstinent at 12 months. If the individual chose to dive into recovery support meetings, AA, 12 steps, um, what are the other non-12-step things of Dharma? Dharma Nami. Nami, yeah. all those types of things. 46 percent increase in likelihood of an outcome versus 22 percent decrease. Um, those individuals held accountable through drug testing, 20 percent versus eight percent. So <laughs> accountability does work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, living in sober living uh, group, homes, 19 percent to 13 percent, not a strong differentiation there. Um, uh, We've had past episodes in talking about the challenges of sober homes. Uh, We're not going to review all that today, but and then seeing a personal therapist beyond the walls, 32% to 27%, not a significant shift. The thing that I think is most uh, interesting here, action taken for at least six months post-treatment that did not appear to make a difference for patients to remain abstinent at month 12. A lot of these data sets are so low, 4%, 3%, 2%, not really worth highlighting, but to the point of monotherapeutic approaches 41 percent of individuals on a medication a psychotropic medication were not in recovery six months post-treatment as a value set so to the point of medicines right at the end of the day if we are anchoring ourselves into the belief system that those things are going to lead to longevity and happiness and wellness we're fooling ourselves the outcomes we're highlighting in the research are apparent within Peaks Recovery Center's research at the end of the day, or post treatment outcomes at the end of the day. And I think that's just worth, uh, again, highlighting for the viewers out there, there is no med that is gonna fix this or resolve this or guarantee that next step forward. Um, In a world that really takes a great holistic approach and a really significant timeline, not just to stop using drugs and alcohol or to stop feeling depressed, but to continue to live beyond Um, the initial struggles into these journeys we call recovery, long term at the end of the day. And so, I don't know if there's anything you guys wanna highlight further about sort of the aftercare choices or things uh, at the end of the day, but um, you know, for me, uh, when I think about it, the longer in treatment, the longer the commitment, the willingness to show back up where we feel like we fall short, not as a failure, but falling short in our goals, not seen as a failure, but as an opportunity to come back and negotiate that and move forward, um when we are not reliant on individual things but to an entire process the outcomes continue to go up Mm -hmm. and i think that's worth painting a picture on and why we are so insistent not just at peaks but all treatment centers not about the money because the longer you're with us the less money a treatment center makes at the end of the day Um, the value proposition is a higher outcome and it requires that participation and so i don't know if you guys want to I want to take us out with a quote here and your your thoughts about it that, that I shared with you this morning Jason but before we do aftercare choices anything you want to tie into
1: there yeah the the sober living one was a bit surprising to me that it it had a very minimal impact and I, I suspect that's due to variability of uh, sober living homes um, and kind of an inconsistent inconsistency, inconsistency. it's just newly regulated too as far as here in Colorado and so um, i'll be curious to see if regulation uh, improvement on sober living homes helps uh drive better outcomes with that
0: my my brief concern about the sober living homes and our experience is that like we talked about it here putting somebody in a bucket and saying you can only do it this way mm-hmm. is is just not helpful and it's discouraging and i think what happens for us is that we don't take that approach but operators of sober living homes have a I did it this way and now you're going to do it this way and they go from an environment of like love, openness, what's your path, what's your journey, how are you going to succeed here into an environment that is literally like you're going to do it this way and you better be sober the entire time. And those restrictive sort of potentially shame-based features of the environments I think can be causally disruptive in a person's treatment uh, journey and I think that is often reported back to us at least from what I hear from our patient demographic and so you know, I have always thought sober living homes at the end of the day, if they just change their tune, I mean, we had Kyle, um, I forget his last name, and his, his partner, mm-hmm. I think his name is Bryce Off the top of my head, but they came on, mm-hmm. and it's, um, what is their, what Sofferson, is it? Is, is that it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah all, Sofferson Sober Living. But they have Home. this very open, like, you arrive, you got your bag in your hand, you have to sort of like, how do we help you succeed in your journey? And what does that journey look like? We're gonna hold you accountable to your journey, but it's not based on our perception about um, what all paths forward or something yeah. like this, all paths over yeah. living. Um, so you tell us what that is, we'll hold you accountable to the story, but it's not gonna be here's what you need to do and we're gonna hold you accountable to our perception of the path. And I think that's starting to shift in the market a little bit and I think that will succeed in greater outcomes when the individual can be met where they're at, mm-hmm. held accountable to no use, but also we're just gonna hold you accountable to the narrative you gave us versus the one we perceive you need to go through. Yeah.
2: No, I think the biggest message here is aftercare is crucial. I think the second our clients walk in the door, our case management team is already there to talk about what do you want for aftercare, what do you expect, but then on the other side they're asking the clinical team, what are your clinical recommendations for aftercare? Because a lot of people, they just don't want to do aftercare, right? I did this, we're done, I don't need a therapist, I don't need IOP, all of these different things, but the reality of it is that you do. In order to meet some of these outcomes and, and continue with this recovery journey there has to be the accountability there has to be the personal responsibility community connection that's one of the major things that the clients say is I just need a community I need connection I need people to understand me and so I think if anything I want people to know like as much as you feel that aftercare might be a nuisance to your life it is your life it is something that you are investing in in order to continue to live your life and so cost benefit analysis in that situation is do the aftercare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't just recommend it because we want to take your money or we want you no we recommend this because it is what works <laughs> end of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. 16% to 56%. If you mm-hmm. do 7 to 30 days, if you do over 181 days, never mind what you do beyond the walls of peaks for 100, you know, and 80 more days, right? uh, I would imagine that if we could track that historically and in in the future, we'll just see that sort of rise to the occasion. So uh, with all the data aside, I appreciate the viewers walking through all of that with us. Um, I did this in the introduction. I shared this quote with you this morning as well too, Jason, uh, from uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, who once wrote to himself, and among the things you turn to, these two, the things have no hold on the soul. They stand there unmoving outside it. Disturbances comes only from within, from our own perceptions, and two, that everything you see will soon later, will soon alter and cease to exist. Think of how many things, changes you've already seen in this world. This world is nothing but change. Our life is only about perception. And I share that and curious about feedback because there seems to be a significant reliance on external strategies, but the external world is constantly changing and constantly moving. And when we talk about SSRIs, for example, those are things we, as a society, thought were reliable external strategies. And the evidence now in 2020, to moving forward is changing in front of us. We are no longer thinking it's about the bio, you know, chemical imbalance within our brains and the data isn't actually pointing to that. And so the world is changing in regards to these external strategies in a world that is generally increasing in it's suffering, right? And so at the end of the day, all we're left with our perceptions, but the reality is for me is What Marcus Aurelius is stating is the thing that is inside of us, this divine consciousness, the soul, the individual, the internal life uh, that we get to breathe and experience for this limited time we're on Earth, cannot be disrupted by the outside. Only our perception will allow for that disruption uh, at the end of the day. And so I think there's a calling here, not just from somebody who wrote something 2,000 years ago, but when I look at podcasts that talk about longevity, when I think about my own clinical journey, and response to traumatic experiences, my running, all these types of things, um, that the more more I'm relying on the external for strategies and the perception I give to that, good or bad, only further disrupts my internal motivation and desire to be well. And I know I'm throwing a big quote at you guys here at the end of this, but just (laughs) curious how you perceive that within like peaks and what we're doing with individuals uh, at the end of each day. So it's a big quote. It's a huge goal. There's a lot to unpack there. We're not going to necessarily do it, but just curious if there's anything that resonates further with you guys there that the viewers can chomp on until next episode. Yeah, and I th- it, it,
1: my, my first response was I think that goes really nicely with the, our work on the conscious recovery, which is about um, really finding some form of spiritual healing and, and having that, uh, you know, I think um, TJ uh, calls it our, our Perfect,
2: whole, and perfect. whole and
1: perfect self um, to me that I feel like he's kind of saying the same thing that like you know I think historically a lot of treatment has been outside in like just do the right thing do the right thing get away from the wrong people do 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 all this out outside in um, and I think the Marcus realist quote uh, goes nicely with like we're we're here to try to help people um, change from the inside out and, and actually hardly even change like just reaccess uh, that part of them that that they've lost touch with. Like, I think that in a, in a nutshell is what recovery is, is regaining that ability, um, not only to trust yourself, but to be in relationship with yourself where you have access um, to kind of that soul or that uh, perfect nature.
2: Well, it is an interesting thing too, that we limit ourselves in a way, right? Like this TMS is gonna work, ketamine's gonna work. Uh, Antidepressants are going to work, all of these other things are going to work, but we don't give credit to ourselves. We don't give credit to the ability we have to um, nurture ourselves or understand ourselves and and go internally. I think we live in a society that is very external, right? You see some of the men that come through our program and and it's, you know, I I got the wife, I got the kids, I got the big house, I got the nice car, I got the CEO job, and I still feel empty. Well, yeah, because you are trying to go towards all of these things that are for everybody else, and you're not looking at yourself, you're not, able to see what do I need in these situations? What's important to me? It's all about external forces. And so being able to take a minute within a treatment center setting to just sit down and say, hey, what's going on with you? It's really uncomfortable a lot of the time. I always tell clients like, you're gonna feel a lot worse before you feel better. I'm sorry to tell you that, right? But it's because we have created so much fear around who we are internally that we run away from it as much as we can. But the problem is, is you haven't even confronted it yet, so how do you know it's scary? And so being able to guide them to a place of, hey, you can look at yourself and it doesn't have to be the scariest thing in the entire world, but instead it's going to bring you to your whole and perfect self and it's going to allow you to live the life that you've wanted to live.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many paradoxes in what we do, right? wellness kind of requires suffering, Mm -hmm. you know, we want you to move toward the goal, but we also need you to be still at the same time, right? Mm. And I think it goes to point that they, that we should disrupt and continue to disrupt this narrative of a linear path and find acceptance and grace for each individual should have grace for themselves to navigate a very complex world with a lot of downward pressure on the individual's capacity to find wellness. And... Without further ado, I think we should just stop it there because we got (laughs) a lot more to unpack here. Questions, thoughts, ideas, all those things for the viewers out there. FindingPeaks at findingpeaks.com? Gosh, I forget. Questions at findingpeaks, yeah. at findingpeaks.com. Kuv, thanks. Kuv, you should just know my brain breaks (laughs) on this this thing. Get it on the screen every time, man. Appreciate you, love you back there. Questions at findingpeaks.com. We would love to expand on this if the viewers or listeners are out there curious we are happy to dive into it i think what i've always wanted to promote from my position at peaks is transparency that we are uh, in a world of great challenges we experience that as a treatment center but that does not mean no introspection that does not mean uh our own growth and ability to grow on behalf of patient care so uh and i know we've discouraged as well too hanging out on the social media but our social media is great (laughs) and filled with positivity and motivation and opportunities for success out there. So the TikToks, the Facebooks, the Instagram, all those things out there, we hope that those social media outlets are positive to our viewers out there. uh, And it's certainly a space for which we get to point at our future episodes, clips, mic drop moments from these episodes that are hopefully motivating in some way for the viewers out there. So uh, we can't do it without being found. It's the paradox of, showcasing something (laughs) that we're trying to resolve also in the background. But uh, to the viewers out there, Brennan Burns, Chief Executive Officer, to my beautiful host, thank you as always for joining me. And until next time.